I am in Acts 1. I'm going to read uh, the first five verses of Acts. And we're starting a new series, and the series is called 50. And it's called 50 because uh, Jesus was actually crucified on the Jewish Passover, um, literally fulfilling the Old Testament. So he became the Passover lamb foretold really in Exodus when the people were being delivered from Egypt um, under Moses' leadership. So Jesus fulfills that. He becomes the Passover lamb sort of uh, some, not only symbolically but literally on that day. And then on the day he was crucified, there's a period of 50 days uh, to which, um, in which uh, the people are sort of waiting. Jesus is revealing himself to different pockets of people, uh, 500 at, at one point. We're gonna read that in just a minute. But at the end of that 50 days, the Holy Spirit, right after Jesus ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit actually descended or was released upon his people on a day of Pentecost. And so what we wanna wrestle with in this series called 50, it's uh, the Pentecost Sunday is actually the end of May. And so we're gonna um, sort of take this span of time and we're gonna dig into the word in the first few chapters of Acts. And we're gonna look at and sort of wrestle with how do we as believers have or experience more of the Holy Spirit when we already have everything in Christ Jesus. There's a little bit of a, a, a paradigm or a little bit of a dichotomy there that we're gonna wrestle with and look at. And we'll even talk about some things like baptism in the spirit and sort of um, taglines and cliches that have been tossed around and we'll look at the scriptural basis for it. So I wanna dig in this morning um, to Acts 1, verses one through five. Um, but before I do that, I also wanna give you three quotes. And I, I don't always quote people, but I think on a topic such as the Holy Spirit, his empowering, um, his infilling, it's important to uh, actually look around and look at what some other people have said. So three quotes. First of them is um, one of my favorite leaders, uh, Billy Graham. Here's what he said. He said, everywhere I go, I find God's people lacking something. They're hungry for something. Their Christian experience is not all that they expected, and they often have reoccurring defeat in their lives. Christians today are hungry for spiritual fulfillment. The most desperate need of the nation today is that men and women who profess Jesus be filled with the Holy Spirit. Good quote, huh? The next is another one of my favorites, a guy named A.W. Tozer, and uh, he wrote three tremendous books, um, but here's a very short quote from him, but here's what Tozer says. He says, the spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. No, no, it is part and parcel with the total plan of God for all of his people. Third quote from a gentleman that I also love and respect named John Piper. John uh, preached this in a sermon series and here's what he said. He said, what we should seek, and this applies to all Christians across the board, is that God would pour his spirit out upon us completely, that we are filled with joy, victorious over sin, and bold to witness. And the ways he brings us to that fullness are probably as varied as we as people are. It may come out in a tumult experience of ecstasy and tongues. It may come out through a crisis of suffering when you finally abandon yourself totally to God. Or it may come out gradually through a steady diet of God's word, prayer, fellowship, and service. 
But however it comes, our first experience of the fullness of the Spirit is only the beginning of a lifelong battle to stay filled with the Spirit. Love those quotes. And I think if we look at Christians, if I look at my own life, um, and then I look at Christians sort of around, um, we would probably say that many of us love him and serve him without truly encountering sort of a daily, uh, deep, emotional, and intimate, affectionate relationship with him. In fact, some of us would even go, is that biblical? And I think what we'll find in this series is not only is it biblical, it is essential, and it's offered to every one of us as believers. We have this God who loves us, who sent a son uh, to die on our behalf, who pursues us relentlessly, who never gives up, never stops, never backs down, always comes after us, even in the most trying, difficult, scary situations. He is ever-present, So that's really the heart behind this series of 50, is how can we as Christians experience more of the infilling power of the Holy Spirit in our lives while we already have everything in Christ. So let's buckle up. We're gonna read Acts 1, 1 through 5, and then we're gonna see if we can't unpack that a little bit. I'm reading out of the NIV Bible this morning, and uh, I'm gonna start in chapter 1, verse 1 of Acts. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, Would you uh, help us as we dig into your word? Would you unpack it for us? Would you bring revelation to us? There's so many sort of myths and rumors and difficulties and topics we as Christians avoid. And yet, Lord, we somehow intrinsically know that you, Christ Jesus, who ascended, then gave your spirit to live in us. We need this daily sort of infilling. And I pray that as we look at this text together that you would enliven us, change us, conform us, and most importantly, fill us with your spirit. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray, amen. So um, I love the book of Acts, and I, I think a couple of just background things that we gotta set the table with as, as we sort of get into this. Um, but, but in a very real sense, Acts is one of the most important books of the New Testament. And it's important because other than Paul's letters, it's really the only book um, about the New Testament church. And in the book of Acts, we sort of get to see the, this wildfire of the shifting and transforming and scattering presence of the Holy Spirit as he brings people to Christ and, and churches are built and even there are people who are killed and they go through suffering and healings happen and you get to see this spontaneous, explosive growth of the church. And without it, we wouldn't know what the early church even looked like. 
Another thing that I think is very important is in the first two verses, you get Luke, who we're gonna talk about in just a second. Luke wrote Acts, and he actually also wrote the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. But in the first two verses, Luke immediately sets Christianity apart from every other religion. And for me, I wouldn't even call Christianity a religion. Christianity is a relationship with a God that, where you walk out sort of a faith and an intimate relationship. And, and yet, what is so profound that Luke sets apart here, right in the first two Two verses is he says, um, I write about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And what's fascinating is in most religions, not only most, in every religion, the holy person or the holy man or the prophet or whoever it was actually fulfills the mission. Not so with Jesus. Not so. What Jesus comes to do is actually sort of light or strike a match that lights the tinder of the wildfire of this Christian faith that would sort of erupt and overflow down through the ages. No, no, it doesn't say he finished it. It actually says he just began to do it. And so we as believers are actually the ones who are called to finish it. We are the ones who are called to go there, therefore out making disciples and, and reaching people. So I love those first two verses. Um, Acts gives us uh, vivid glimpses and great sort of descriptions of, of, of big and significant moments in the New Testament church. Um, three things that I think are important about Luke that, that are helpful just as we study these next few chapters are, number one, he's a physician. He's literally a medical physician, um, and we know that because throughout both of his books, the Gospel of Luke and Acts, he uses very specific surgical language. I'm not gonna get into all that, but it is very clear that he is a physician, and because of that, he's um, sort of very scientific and detailed in his accounts. So we find his accounts to be very, very accurate in the detail um, with which they're written. The second thing I love about Luke is he is the Apostle Paul's most valued helper and loyal friend. And he actually tells the story of Paul going from a, um, a, a murderous, angry sort of person who's out to get the New Testament church to Paul being the greatest proponent and builder of the New Testament church. So love that. And the third thing is, uh, and this is incredible to me, is Luke is actually a Gentile um, and he's the only Gentile writer in the whole Bible. So he, this is just fascinating. So he is writing um, uh, not only for uh, himself, but for all of us who are non-Jewish. Every one of us who is, is uh, non-Jewish is a Gentile. So praise God he wrote it because we are here. Then I think the other thing that's important as we dig into this is he, he says in this opening line, in my former book, Theophilus, and you gotta wonder, is Theophilus a person? And there's a number of theories around this. I just wanna point out one in our time this morning, but uh, Theophilus may be a real name and a real person, but Luke is writing uh, this when it is literally dangerous under penalty of death to be a Christian. So Theophilus uh, literally means a lover of God. Theo means God and Philean means love. So you literally have lover of God. So it's possible that Theophilus is not a person, but rather Luke is writing it to a particular lover of God or all of the lovers of God. It may be that Luke even saw into the future that he knew that people would need to see a written account of the Lord Jesus and the expansion of the New Testament church, and so he wrote to all lovers of God. And then I think we also have to ask the question, why did Luke even write Acts? And there's a couple of thoughts there. It's possible that he actually wrote Acts to commend Christianity to the Roman government. He may have even written Acts because he wanted to defend the Apostle Paul, who, as you know or may know, was in prison and ultimately killed for his faith. 
He might have written the book of Acts to show that Christianity was for all people in every country and to sort of demonstrate that explosive uh, rolling and scattering effect that happened as the New Testament church was built. And I think the third thing is similar to it, but it might be to fulfill Acts 1.8, which we'll read next week, but is actually to bear witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's really fascinating that you have uh, Christianity uh, starting in, in, in Palestine, and within 30 years, it's reached Rome, the very center and most powerful place in the known world. So a little bit of background there. So as we, as we look back now at this text, I just began to sort of study and go, okay, Lord, what, are you, what were you saying? What happened? Because these are all of your disciples. And at this point, Jesus has been crucified and he has been raised from the dead. And he, it literally says he is appearing to them. So they're in many ways probably um, scared that they're gonna be killed. Uh, their faith is, while in one sense it's being built up, it's also at a point of sort of crisis. What is happening? This is massive transition. The, the, the disciples were at a point where they actually thought that the kingdom of God God was gonna resemble an Old Testament king like King David and that Jesus would come at the front of an army and he would come with great power and great sort of hubris and, and instead he comes on a donkey. He comes with great service. He comes with great humility and he said the one who, who, who wants to um, be, uh, be a servant must give his life and we've been talking about sort of that dichotomy of dying so that you can live. But I think the first thing that I love here is it literally says Jesus chose them. It's at the end of verse two and it says through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. I I love this passage because it literally is is outlining that Jesus chose this group of people. And if you got into the Greek here, this is the same Greek word that, that Luke uses when he first writes about the apostles being called when they were fishermen and tax collectors and knuckleheads. And it's also the same word that he uses uh, when Paul is called on the road to Damascus in Acts 8 and 9, if you want to look that up. But I was reflecting on Jesus choosing um, them and then the obvious application, Jesus choosing us, Jesus choosing you, Jesus choosing me. And I was actually reflecting back to one of my favorite um, seasons of preaching uh, that we've been chosen. And I was thinking, Abby and I, my wife, uh, led a camp for seven or eight years called Power Camp. And we had uh, sometimes 150 up to 250 um, first through eighth graders who would attend this camp. And we had 60 to 70 staff members. And it was just a wonderful summertime experience. And we did everything from soccer to surfing to horseback riding to baseball and drama and everything in between. But what was amazing is I would literally get to get up and, and teach this group of campers, first to eighth graders, uh, the simplicity of the gospel that they were chosen, that they are chosen. And it was fun because I would use things like Psalms 139, that God knew them before they were even born, while they were in uh, the belly of their mothers. I'd also used Isaiah 49:16, which says literally, I've engraved you on the palm of my hand. It's God talking about his children that he's engraved. One translation actually says, tattooed you on the palms of my hand. I mean, how could you ever forget? I also would use with them Matthew 10, 29, that your father does not even let a little sparrow, the tiny little brown sparrow birds, doesn't even let one fall to the earth without giving his consent. How much more important are you I'd also use, and this would get a great laugh out of all of them, because I'd use Luke 12, seven, and talking about the very hairs of your head being numbered, or the lack thereof. 
But what I would love is as we would talk about them being chosen, that Jesus chose them, that he pulled them out, that he was offering them life, their little faces would light up. And I think this is what Jesus meant when he said you must have faith like a little child. And what I would wanna say to you today is Jesus has chosen, not only did he choose the apostles, but he has chosen you, he has chosen me. And the question at the end of our time together, the question really you have to answer every day is Jesus has chosen you, will you choose him? My second point this morning is that Jesus revealed himself to them or Jesus showed himself to them and you see that in verse three. After his suffering, he, Jesus, presented himself to them. I love that because he appeared to them, he spoke to them and it literally says he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. I mean, how incredible is that? He actually appeared to their senses. He, they ate with him, and, and so they, they knew that by eating with him that he wasn't a ghost, he was a real living person. They could see him and touch him and even smell him. They could hear him, and they knew that he was alive. I think if there was anything that I would want to encourage us as a church on today is that just like Jesus revealed himself or showed himself to these Apostles, he is also actively revealing himself to us today. He's revealing himself to you. You know, some of you know this, but my wife Abby just gave birth to um, one of our kids, Ezra, and a little, little beautiful baby boy. And I walked away from that experience um, again, just going, how could anyone doubt that there is a creator God who intimately and um, intentionally orchestrated the world and orchestrated our lives. Because when you see the miracle of birth and even the miracle of a baby latching onto a mother and the, the, this, this beautiful relationship that happens, it is absolutely remarkable. See, Jesus showed himself to them. He revealed himself to them. And here's what I would actually call you to begin to look at in your own life is Jesus is revealing himself to you. It may be through difficulty. It may be through challenges and suffering. It may be through the challenges even of what we're in right now with the coronavirus and the recession and not knowing the uncertainty of the future and jobs and houses and you fill in all of the blanks. But he is actively showing himself to us he has and he will continue to reveal himself to us. The question becomes, are we watching? Are we listening? Are we looking? Are our sort of ears and eyes of our heart inclined towards him? The third point that I wanna make this morning is that Jesus commissioned them. So as you read on, it says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I'm not gonna flip back and read it, but if you read John 20, 21, and 22, you actually uh, see Jesus, uh, I think it's John 20, 22, but you actually, Jesus walks through a locked room, probably the very upper room where they celebrated the Last Supper, but he walks through a locked door and he reveals himself to them and he actually breathed um, on them and told them, promised them that they would receive the Holy Spirit. He commissioned them at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Luke actually records it sort of as the Great Commission but Jesus commissioned them. 
And I think what's probably most important there that we see is that we as believers have purpose. And one of the things that you have to do is sort of pause and look around in a time of crisis and go, Lord, where are you and what are you doing and how can we be a part of that? You know, a little way that we've done that is with this little yellow truck that we have. It's a small thing, but we have people making signs and we're posting signs out at the hospital that are just encouraging and honoring to our healthcare workers. It's nothing religious. We're not even putting any Bible language or God language in there. We had to commit, in fact, to the hospital staff that we wouldn't do that in order to get the approval. But it's been amazing because I'm getting texts and we've seen some stuff on Facebook where people are like, who is doing this and why are they even taking the time to encourage us? But see, he's given us purpose. He's given every one of us purpose as people. And I think what's incredible is that not only did Jesus commission his apostles, but he has commissioned you and I to carry the love of Jesus to the ends of the earth, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Last thing I want you to notice there is they literally cannot fulfill their commission without the promised baptism, without being clothed with power from on high. That's really the essence of what we're sort of digging into here in this 50 series. Which brings me to my last point, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to them. When you study the book of Acts, it's impossible almost to draw a line between the work of the Holy Spirit and and the work of a risen Christ Jesus. And frankly, we don't really need to draw a line there. The Holy Spirit fulfills the promise of Jesus because Jesus said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In some ways, you can think of the Holy Spirit as the spirit of Jesus but he is his own person that ascended or descended after Jesus ascended. So when Jesus was in that upper room, I just mentioned it, but he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. I think something that's critical here, and we will even, we don't wanna talk about it just a second, but is it that there is a baptism of the Spirit? Is it that there is a second work? And I'm really, I kinda shy away, if I shoot straight with you, from using sort of the baptism in the Spirit language, because from my perspective, is it a second work? Yes, it it appears to be, because Jesus breathed on him in John 20 and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't until some days later that they actually received him at Pentecost. But I also think it's a third work, and a fourth work, and a fifth work, and a sixth work. In other words, there's not a day that goes by in my life that I'm not actively going, Lord Jesus, uh, would you show me, would you forgive me, and would you fill me? So when someone asks, Michael, do you believe in the baptism of the Spirit? My answer is literally something usually like, well, yeah, yeah, I I believe in it. And and I've been filled with the Spirit and I'm being filled with the Spirit and I will be filled with the Spirit. So so is, is this promised Holy Spirit a second work? Yes. But is it a third work? Yes. And does it go on every day for the rest of our lives? Yes. And I think that's what John Piper was literally saying at the beginning when I quoted him and he says, However it comes, our first experience of the fullness of the Spirit is only the beginning of a lifelong battle to stay filled with the Spirit. So Jesus has literally promised the Holy Spirit to them. And I think a question that I would ask you in this journey, in this time, in this season is, are you willing to be possessed by another? That's how Tozer would put it. Are you willing to go his way, to pray that his kingdom come, to pray that his will would be done, to forsake your own way, to take up his path. 
I think another thing that we would have to address or look at in this promised Holy Spirit is God has called us to be content in life. We all know that. I actually did a sermon on it a few weeks back. He's called us to be content, but you never get the idea in any of scripture that he's called us to be satisfied spiritually. No, instead you get this idea that he wants us to be hungry. He wants us to want more, that, that all of heaven actually finds a hungry heart that wants more of the spirit of God, irresistible. See, I'm content in Christ Jesus, but I'm also hungry. I'm not satisfied. I want more of the Holy Spirit in my life. I want more of the Holy Spirit in your life. I want more of the Holy Spirit in our church's life. A way that I would think about it and invite you to think about it is, are you full of unspeakable joy? If not, you may need an infilling. Do you know victory over sin in every area of your life? Well, if you're like me, some days you do and some days you don't and you have to ask for another infilling. Do you know the empowering to serve? Are you expectant or are you satisfied? Again, I'm content, but I'm not satisfied. I'm hungry for more of the Holy Spirit. And my prayer is over these next 50 days as we look at this series in the first few chapters of Acts that he actually moves on our hearts and minds to renew us, to revive us, to even awaken us. In fact, my prayer and my belief and even why we're doing this series is because I am convinced that the coronavirus is being allowed, you could, I did a series on this, or sermon on this a couple weeks ago, but is being allowed uh, God hasn't caused it, but he is allowing it to get the attention of, our, of us as believers. And my prayer is that we turn our hearts back towards him. Martin Lloyd-Jones of Westminster Chapel once pounded his pulpit and he asked, have you got it all? I simply ask in the name of God, why then are you as you are? If you've got it all, why are you so unlike New Testament Christians? Have you got it all? You got it at your conversion. Well, where is it, I ask? Fascinating statement that he makes right there. Fascinating question. And I think his point is well taken that when you look around at, at, at the church and you may even look at your own life and your own family and your own marriage or wherever you walk and you might go either God gave the New Testament believers more than he's given us or we have failed as believers to avail ourselves to all of what has been given and promised. Martin Lloyd-Jones' belief was no doubt the latter, as is mine. I'm not sure about you, but I want everything the Lord Jesus has to offer. I want every ounce of his spirit. I'm really done with my own way and my own agenda and my own plan and my own path. No, no, I want the Lord Jesus. I want actually us to be a church that is able to fully pray and mean it. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done. Perry, would you come back up as we move towards a closing song? Here's what I'd actually leave you with salt box. Jesus has chosen you. He has paid the price. The question this morning is, will you choose him? And that question really goes two ways. Come on, Perry, when you're ready. That question goes two ways. Will you choose Jesus if you already know God, if you have a relationship with him, if you're familiar to uh, with sort of walking with him. And the question is, are there areas of your life that you haven't fully surrendered? Are there parts of your, um, 
of your relationship or the way you live that aren't fully surrendered to him? And I think the second part of that question is for those who may have never given their life to Christ, who may have never surrendered their hearts. And if that's you, I'd invite you to look at Romans 10, 9, and 10. It's actually a simple transaction, but it's a supernatural transaction where you come and you lay your heart and your life down and you take up the life of Christ. But Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, if you believe in God, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So in your living room, if you're out there today and you're going, you know, I've never surrendered my life to Christ Jesus, there's a number at the bottom of your screen. Give it a call, there's a number of us on the line who are available to talk to you and pray with you, lead you through that. But you can surrender your heart to Christ Jesus right in your living room. For those of us who are believers, who've walked with him a long time, I think this is an opportunity for us in the middle of the coronavirus, in the middle of quarantine, in the middle of boredom, in the middle of challenges, in the middle of fear over our retirement or frustration with relationships, to actually surrender our hearts at a deeper level. 